This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And each week, one of us reads a book. We talk to the other person about it. You listen along at home. And maybe we all learn something. This week, I read Bridge to Terabithia by Catherine Patterson, which is a children's book renowned for for its uh, tale of grief, tale of loss. But Andrew, I I understand you need to get some grief off your chest first. You're mourning something. Don't act like this is just my grief. I'm here with you, but I'm playing the role of audience surrogate right now. Our bar trivia team. Yes. Governor Quiz Quisty R and J. Yes. Thank you for saying the full name. (laughs) You're welcome. Uh, We we got invited to a big uh, bar trivia tournament. Mm Mm-hmm. And we didn't do very good. No, we did pretty bad. We did like pretty bad. And it's the kind of it's the kind of thing where you hand in your score sheet and all the answers are you you like feel pretty good about them. And then you wait like fifteen minutes for the the game master to score them all. And then he gets up and he's like, All right, I'm gonna tell you what all the answers were. And he just like takes a sledgehammer to your hopes and dreams. He just says things that <laughs> you didn't even know could have been answers. Yeah. And you're just wrong, wrong, wrong. And you've come into this event in first place in your league. And we earned the most quiz bar trivia points of yes. any team in the city of Philadelphia. In the which city is, of like, Philadelphia. Listen, if that sounds impressive, it's because it is. <laughs> Be impressed. But here we are mourning our loss. We also mourn that some of our teammates were unable to join us not because they've passed but because they were busy and perhaps we would have they won passed with them. on showing up to play bar <laughs> trivia with us and so as far as i'm concerned they might as well be dead oh god i hope they're not listening right now i fully and i laid this out i fully believe that if the first night that we went to go play bar trivia if we had not won the game Without expecting to. If we had not won by accident, that's true. I would be far less interested in this enterprise. You might have than stopped coming. It's true. Yeah, because like I'm not You're not here to be a loser. I get I've it. I've got a weird combination of untalented and competitive that like does not serve me well in most contexts. Like intelligence okay. and physical activity wise. Well, yeah, but Quizzo is not a physical activity. No, like, you count but it is an, as a it's physical an, activity. It's an intelligence thing. And so I just, if there's not a chance that I will win, I have less fun. Okay. And that's what happened tonight. Well, I hope that you can win this podcast. That's I why I mourn. That you can have fun here today as we talk about a book that is renowned for being sad. That's the uh, thing. Like, there's no winners and losers. You just have fun. And if you have fun, you win. Overdue podcast. <laughs> okay, Yogi Berra. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
so picnic this, baskets. This that's a different guy. This book uh, was well, it won awards. Catherine Patterson's a renowned author. Um, have you read this, Andrew? I read Bridge to Terabithia actually a bunch of times as a kid. It was it was a book I liked a lot. Okay. And I, I, I'm trying to remember the last time I read it. It's been a long time since I revisited. Um, but yeah, Catherine Patterson is um, she's a Chinese American author who was born in 1932, and yeah, she's best known for children's novel children's novels like Bridge to Terabithia. Um, she won she's won two Newbery medals and two National Book Awards in the space of five years. Yeah, which is kind of amazing and then a bunch of other awards like way too many for me to enumerate here yes um yeah she was born in 1932 um her parents were american christian missionaries so she spent a lot of time moving around in china and they had to like flee china when the japanese invaded in 1937 and this was part of a conflict that eventually became part of world war world war ii um, but yeah, her family moved to America and then back to China, and then they fled China again in 1940. So they they were kind of all over the place. Chinese was actually her first language. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they were they were missionaries and and became Americans later. What were you saying? Oh, just that they eventually moved to like Virginia. Yes, and were and she then spent time in Japan. Uh, after she got her degree working as a missionary and teacher, um, she eventually got into creative writing, taking an adult ed course. So she didn't start, she wasn't like writing and getting published until the 70s. So like, hey, if you got something you want to do in your life, like there's time. We have said this I mean, seize the day, but also and, there's time, you know. Seize the day, but also like seize the year, seize a decade, seize, seize your the, whole life. Seize your life. <laughs> seize your life. You never know when you're going to lose a Quizzo tournament. Seize your life. <laughs> Listen, you might lose one tournament, but if you keep trying hard enough, your life might average out to be better than that. That's true. This is probably <laughs> her best known book. Um, I've not read any of her other books. I've not seen either of these films. There are two films of this book. Yeah, I haven't read any of other any of her other books or uh, looked at any of the other adaptations. So what, there was a TV series and then there was a movie in 2007. Uh, right? Yeah. W- was it a TV series? or was a TV movie. It was PBS, but I don't know if it was a series. It was a telefilm, a telefilm. So TV movie. <laughs> yeah. Don't get fancy on me. TV. I'm just using internet terminology. I got my, I got my eye on you. <laughs> yeah. T- I like it when TV shows use the word teleplay. Like we just know it's a script dog. Just say <laughs> script. To, yeah, don't get all fancy. Highfalutin um, TV. So, as I said, the book was published in 77. Um, regarding the name Terabithia, it refers to, if you haven't read it, a, oh, yeah, that's a, cool story. a fantasy land that the two main kids like make up. Um, to quote Patterson, she says, I thought I had made it up. Then rereading uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis, I realized that I had probably gotten it from the island of Terabinthia in that book. However, Lewis probably got that name from Terabinth from the Terabinth tree in the Bible. So both of us pinched from somewhere else, probably unconsciously. I think Lewis might have done it consciously. Yeah, but. probably he did do it con <laughs> like uh Voyage of the Don Treader was the third of the seven Narnia books in sure. um publication order. 
So and that, got, a, me- yeah, that gets <laughs> mentioned probably in this book. Intentional on his part, but yeah, um, Patterson's mentioning of this series, and then she also obliquely, I believe, mentions the um, the Perdane series of books, which, which is I don't a, know anything about. I know you know, but I don't. I do. I read them. It's um, it's like the Black Cauldron, book of three, um, a bunch oh, okay. of uh, f- a series of five books that Lloyd Alexander wrote. Sure, which sure. I think at some point we'll have to do for the show. But yeah, she's she's clearly steeped in um in this like history of kids fantasy and she uses that to inform the way that these kids interact with the fantasy world that they create in a terabithia and one of the things that one of the overlaps with lewis that's interesting is that this book is apparently or at least was for a period of time a very highly censored book like it was on a lot of like banned book lists for libraries and one of the reasons is like occult Satanism, which I find ironic because like a lot of Patterson's writing has its roots in her experience as like a Christian educator and her missionary parents. Uh, one of the like few things that people have pointed to is that the main character Jess uses the word Lord a bunch, but in the like kind of like vernacular. outside of prayer. Yes. In the, in the- taking it in vain sense yes and the like imaginary world creating stuff if you really want to get like paranoid about it is like advocating some sort of new age secular humanism yeah and and this book was published in the late 70s and this was the same era in which people were saying that like dungeons and dragons Mm -hmm. was a satanist game and it was like of the devil it was it's there was a particular scare going around, I guess, in culture at this point in time. And yes. it seems like this book kind of got caught up in it. Yeah. Whenever I think of that, I think, have you ever seen the movie Footloose, Andrew? Uh, where, uh, what's his name? Teaches those that town to dance. Yes. Um, Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon teaches a town to dance. But first, John Lithgow, like, burns all the town's books. <laughs> like, he's uh, he's a priest who's who hates dancing. He and does like dancing. I haven't seen. I've seen part of the movie. I haven't seen the beginning or the end, but I did watch part of the middle ones. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> Otlo, yeah, my favorite part of that movie, Footloose. Um, that's a stupid joke. Yeah, it is a pretty good joke. You want to? <laughs> no, that's not what I said. Take a quick break, and we'll talk about this sad, sad book. Yeah, sure. You want to go first? No, you go first. Andrew, did you know that this podcast is brought to you and our listeners by Squarespace? Yes. It's brought to you, my co-host, by Squarespace. Yeah, wow, thanks. Uh, Summer's running out, Andrew. It's the perfect time to create your own beautiful website. It's running out, but it's not too late. You can still turn your cool idea into a hot new website. You can (laughs) showcase your work. On a beautiful Squarespace website, you can blog or publish any sort of content, I guess. Content uh, makes the world go round. Like if you if you are listening and you're not publishing content, like what are you doing? <laughs> you know, stop. I mean, don't stop listening, but also when you're done listening, go make some content. Um, and you can promote it on your new Squarespace website. And they've got all sorts of beautiful templates uh, made by world-class designers. They've got e-commerce tools if your content is like you want to sell it. Um, it's optimized for mobile. 
and there's no like software. You don't like install it. There's nothing to update or patch. You just go to the Squarespace website and Listen, it's all like, there for you. Software is there, but oh, they sure. handle okay. it for you. They've got it. They've got twenty four seven customer support in case you have problems. You know, problems whatever with the software that you don't understand. <laughs> That's me. Uh, yeah, as as part of their uh, their summer push, they have published a bunch of new templates that I'm actually kind of playing around with for the uh, OverduePodcast.com website. Which is powerful. I don't know if I'll, if I'll use any of them, but I am I am glad that they are there. Uh, people who use Squarespace, it's a lot of different people. You can use it for a bunch of different things. Craig and I both have hosted our respective wedding websites on it. We host our podcast website on it. Mm-hmm. It's great for art galleries, graphic designers, museums, performing artists, writers, bloggers, sports teams, nutritionists. Like it's like anybody who has a thing that they are trying to present to the world. Squarespace makes it super easy to do it in a really attractive and modern way that is compatible with all the many, many devices that people are using to browse that information superhighway. In this, the year of our Lord, 2017. Get on the highway. Beep, beep. Your next steps. You got to check out Squarespace at squarespace.com. You got to register your domain name. You got to start your free website or online store trial. And then when you're ready to launch, you're going to use the over the over code, the offer code <laughs> overdue. And you're going to save 10%. It's going to be great. Think for a minute how many percent that is. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah, like if you could have ten percent more money than you have right now, that would be great, right? Like, and this is our this is the first step toward doing that for Somebody yourself. Somebody make a website where you just figure out if that math checks out, <laughs> please. But don't tell me about <laughs> don't it. Don't tell you about it. All right, everybody, make your next move with Squarespace. They're good at websites, and you can be too. Andrew, what are you doing on October? The fourteenth, twenty seventeen. Let me check my calendar. I think I have plans, but I forget what they are and who I made them with. I think you made them with me, and you made them with the Fall for the Book Festival down in Virginia. That sounds right, but yes. I'll have to get back to you. Okay, sure. So, uh, the fine folks at the Fall for the Book Festival held at George Mason University invited us down to Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, to be a part of their like free awesome literary festival, so we're gonna be there on Oc- Saturday, October fourteenth, from three th- starting at three thirty for a taping live of this very podcast. Um, Andrew, do you want to tell the folks at home what you're gonna be reading? I'm gonna be reading Beauty and the Beast, which honestly I was not even aware was a book until we decided that I would read it. So yeah. I am pretty excited to tackle that and see where it's different from the Disney movie that we all know and love. Yes. So you can come on down. You can see us there. Um, There's a whole bunch of other stuff. There's lots of speakers and readings and and tapings happening that whole week. So head to fallforthebook.org for more information. And then we will end up in the next like week or so. We'll make a Facebook event so you can RSVP specifically to us, but it's all free. Like just go to the website, see what you want to do. Um, get involved it seems like a really cool weekend yeah and hopefully we can make plans to hang out with y'all after i know we've done we've done a lot of shows in philly because that's where we live and it's just easy that way 
Uh, we did a show in Boston uh, last month, but this is going to be our first show in like the the wider Washington D.C. like Baltimore mm-hmm, mm-hmm. area. So if you have not been able to make it up to any of our live shows so far, we really hope that you can come out and see us at this one. We're gonna try and make it a good show, and then after the show, we're gonna try and hang out with you and make it cool. Also, make it cool. That's our whole deal. Fallforthebook.org. We'll see you there. Okay, Andrew, we need to talk about something. What is it? I, I'm thought, gonna, we were, I thought we were doing okay. Like, what is, I'm sorry. I'm going to spoil this book. So, like, it's not, we're not going to be able to talk about this book without talking about the sad thing that happens at the end. The thing that people talk about with this book is the sad thing that happens at the end. And that is not to diminish any of the stuff that leads up to it. It's really, like, that is the pivotal moment. Yes. And that is why the book is effective and that is like what the entire thing builds toward and then like comes down from at the end. So okay. it's yeah, it's not one of those where we can like tiptoe around the main twist. There's no like who done it or anything. Who the who done it is just No, God. like yeah, <laughs> life done it. Life done it. I will say and this The cold is- unfeeling universe done it. <laughs> the inspiration for this book, uh Patterson, I believe in her f- 40s yeah in her 40s she was diagnosed with and then beat back uh a diagnosis of cancer so it was a rough period for her family and then within that year her son's david's best friend died after being struck by lightning yikes and her son was going through this period like right afterwards where he thought that like god was just gonna like one by one off everyone he cared for and she got him through it and then was like thinking about a story that she could write to kind of get through some of this stuff for herself. And one of her uh, friends that she was talking to about the book, when someone was like, how's your book going? She's like, I can't finish this book where a kid has to die. And they're like, well, actually you're scared of your own death. So like push on through and you'll finish the book. Um, So like, that's where we're starting from. When you position of being scared of your own mortality, (laughs) which is good, and it's that's that's, like every time we record a new podcast, I enter it scared of that specific (laughs) thing. One of the uh, it's actually not a bad entry point in the book, if only because Jesse Aaron's Jess Aaron's our main character. Um, he's like a 10 or 11 year old boy living in rural Virginia in the 70s. He his arc in this entire book is like of overcoming fears or realizing fears in himself and then kind of pushing through them uh, after he makes a really wonderful friend. So Mm -hmm. let me just set the table for, for Jess. I'm going to try and skip over one or two scenes in the middle of the book. And then we're going to get to the big gut punch. Help me along because you have read this, right? This I have read this book. Great. So we meet Jess Aaron's. He's going in the fifth grade. He lives in rural Virginia, as I said. He's got four sisters, two older ones and two younger ones. He hates the older ones. <laughs> um, they are portrayed as like really materialistic. They get out of chores by like making up plans to go to the mall or something. They kind of wean money off of their mom, even though like from the get-go, this family is portrayed as sort of scraping by. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he likes his younger sister Maybell well enough. One of the things I really like about the rhythm of this book is every few chapters when we see Jess like getting up in the morning, there's always like a short conversation with his sister that he like shares a room with, where the like he doesn't. Patterson doesn't have to concoct like whole events for them to have a relationship that grows over the course of the book. There's just like a really nice domestic rhythm that's very believable. Yeah, I'm sort I'm sort of curious because the in the book Jess is like smack in the middle of his family mm-hmm. of like five kids, right? Yes, and then he has a youngest uh sister named Joyce Ann who is a baby and he like she's four but she's a baby and she's dumb from his point of view. Right. Of course, cuz she probably is cuz sure. she's a baby. <laughs> yes. So I was I was the oldest of 3 and you were the youngest of 3 and mm-hmm. you were the youngest by like quite a bit. I was the youngest by 5 years and my two older sisters were a year apart if that. And so the the dynamic in this book is that the two older sisters are so much older that just really can't like relate to them. And then his relationship to his younger siblings is that they, or at least... Uh, to Maybell, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, at least Maybell like, looks up to him and kind of idolizes him. Yes. I think I'm like I think I have a little bit of experience with the latter. Like, uh, when we were younger, in recent years, my brother and sister have not valued my advice as much. <laughs> but was that your... Was that your experience of being, like, a kid in a house with two, like, young adult sisters? Or how did that go? No, I... Uh, I was Like, really... what about... What of the sibling dynamic does Patterson, like, capture for you? Because I think she really... She does do a good job with it. Yeah, I, I don't have an initial, like... I, I'm not quick to identify with his experience with his younger sisters, because that's not my experience... Um, ironically enough, a lot of my friends are older siblings. That might be because I had older siblings. I don't really know. Um, but my two older sisters, they were, they didn't always get along very well. And so for long periods of time, I was just kind of like, not above the fray because I was just younger. like stuck in the middle. I was, it. well, I wasn't really being wielded or anything. I was just kind of like able to get out of the way as much as I can remember. Sure. Um, one of my sisters, I was more quick to like disagree with and be teased by and and whatever and then the other one i have a good like had a good relationship with for the most part growing up so like the thing that doesn't track with my personal experience is that he doesn't have jess doesn't have an older sister that he is at all in conversation with okay um what does track is that like their experience is so separate from his that they don't enter into his like day-to-day Okay. They don't affect how he's living school. Like, because there's also that thing, and I don't know, I don't remember how much younger your siblings are. Um, my sister is two years younger, and then my brother is five ish so, years younger. Than. And one of the things that I saw with any friends who had older siblings that were like a year or two above them was that when you're going through school, you end up like having all of the same teachers and people yep. recognize and you. And everybody's like, oh, hey, you're Andrew's sister. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine how that is <laughs> I, because I was such a model student. Oh, I bet you were. I was just like, I'm a hard act to follow <laughs> then as now. <laughs> I certainly, I didn't experience that as much because of the more pronounced gap. So, like, by the time a teacher encountered me, they'd had four or five years of buffer. 
Right. So like I was like, oh, oh yeah, I remember them. That's fine. And we were never in the same like school building at the same time, the way that the grades worked out. Um, this small town in Virginia is not quite the same, though that doesn't really affect his school. But it, there is a sense that everybody goes to the same school all at the same time. Um, so he's in this family. His mom works really hard, but she's kind of beleaguered by all these kids. His dad... They have a farm, but like the farm doesn't really earn them any money. It's just kind of there because they have it. And his dad like drives all the way to Washington, D.C. to like do work every day. Um, and there's this like really early moment with the first scene we get of Jess is that he is training to be the fastest kid in fifth grade. So school's going to start and every recess, all the boys run races and he's going to be the fastest this year. And you turn the page, he's talking about it, and he goes, even his dad would be proud. Maybe dad would be so proud he'd forget all about how tired he was from the long drive back and forth to Washington and the digging and hauling all day. He would get right down on the floor and wrestle the way they used to. You're like, oh, jeez. That's a little, no. that's a sad <laughs> way to frame your relationship with your father. Yeah. Yeah, it's really like. Dang. You get like three or four check-ins with their relationship and the end of the book uh his dad obviously like does some good dadding but you can clearly tell that like they're they are strained and part of it too is like it's his only boy it's his only son and one of the things about Jess is that he's like an artist he likes to draw and at one point he tells his dad that he maybe wants to be an artist when he grows up and like there's a little anecdote about his dad for like flying off the handle about what teachers are teaching his like bunch of old ladies turning my son into some kind of and then it gets like cut yeah, off yeah you're like just kind of and what's neat ab- stuff, about stuff yeah. and, and stuff that is of of an era and stuff that doesn't not happen now sure and and the book doesn't it's not obviously it's not okay with it i think patterson actually does a really good job of letting a lot of that stuff be the periphery in which these kids exist. And I have a couple other examples of this where like the plot is not about him developing a better relationship with his dad. No, you know, that happens, but it is not because like the arc of the novel is about this kid, like cracking his dad's cold heart. I I feel like there are a lot of books of this, of this era, especially where, the kids relationship with their parents like like your parents don't understand you in a sort of stock set of ways parents just don't understand they just they don't like will smith said like a a wise man once said a poet once said (laughs) (laughs) but i think the the dad who is not like he's not a bad guy. He's not an abusive guy, but no. he is. But he does. He works a lot, and he's tired a lot, and he doesn't always have time for you, and he's not always like on board with all of your pursuits. Like I think that is a stock character in children's books of this era, and certainly in children's books of this level of complexity. Also, yeah, you're yeah. not. You know, you're never dipping into dad's shoes. You're never getting a sense of that. It's just kind of the book starts with a world where that relationship is sort of taken for granted what it is. Um, Dad works hard. What are you going to do? And it's sad, but what are you going to do? So his world changes. His world gets tipped, turned upside down. Um, When I think it gets flipped, turned upside down. 
I was Excuse in a ru- I was in a rush. I'm sorry. That, okay. Uh, when he meets his new neighbor Leslie, who like shows up while he's milking his cow, Miss Bessie. And I forgot that he had a cow at all. That it, seems strange. Yeah. Well, he's got a farm <laughs> in rural Virginia, and every day he has to go out and milk the cow, and no one else does their chores. And so these are some spots where this uh, new neighbor girl, Leslie, can pop over and say hello. And at first he's like begrudgingly nice to her, but kind of weirded out because she doesn't dress like a girl. At first he's not sure if she is a girl or a boy and doesn't really know, like in a like short haircut like wearing shorts sort of way for the time the, like typical tomboys yeah fires and the he even remarks on like oh and she's got a name that could be either ah i don't know um which i think is actually cool because jess has jess could go both ways either which is kind of neat um but so then school starts and she she kind of gets her new kids stank on him like she likes him <laughs> like she likes him enough because he's her neighbor and she just moved in and like he doesn't have like a clear like group of kids that are his friends and so like he she keeps kind of like sidling up and saying hello and he's like well i can't be mean to her but like god she's so new and and a girl Mm -hmm. so the big thing that happens is that they do the recess race and he's preparing to be the fastest and she wants to race and she wins. After a few more days, no one does races anymore, Andrew. <laughs> None of the boys do them because she kept winning. That's so, that like that makes sense. Like, yep. like if if you did races and the boys lost, like the boys would be uninterested in continuing to lose. They would just like to yeah. quit and construct a reality in which they were talented but they quit racing for unrelated reasons yes and there's like a whole eco structure ecosystem to this recess where like the girls of her age should be off doing this other thing the older boys are doing this other thing so these boys have little like carved out their world she doesn't have a world to be in Mm -hmm. and she crashes theirs and they don't know how to react um but they do bond in miss edmund's music class now jess loves miss edmund in a way that a 10 year old boy can love a hot teacher i guess like a hippie music teacher that is different did you ever have any teacher crushes um wait let me say that louder for the microphone did you ever have any teacher crushes i don't know i'm trying to think if I did or not, there were certainly women teachers who were nicer to me than others, and I was like more interested in spending time with. I don't know if it was to the level of Jess and Miss Edmund here, where he's like, she's the only one who understands me. She praises my art. Clearly, she thinks I'm the best artist. You know, I have. Do you have any teacher crushes? Can I just? I don't know if I'd qualify it as a teacher crush, but can I tell you about a thing that happened with all my seventh grade teachers? Um, is is anyone going to get in trouble? I don't think so. You tell me, and I'll tell you if anyone's going to get in trouble. So we had a seventh grade teacher, and uh-huh. she uh, taught, I believe, English, and then some of us also had her for homeroom, which was like the basically the study hall slash get like ramped up for the rest of the day period that happened at the, yeah. at yep. the beginning yep. Yep. of the day. Mm-hmm. And one, like, I don't know. 
she was like, I don't know how old she was because I was like 13 or 14 and everybody's age seems fluid when you're that young. Like you okay. have no idea how old people actually are. Some kid brought like a, like a WWE poster of some like wrestling woman in China. She's very, I don't know. She's very scantily clad mm-hmm. as wrestling women sometimes are. Mm hmm. And her name was Miss Carlson, and Miss Carlson like confiscated this poster that this boy was showing to everybody, and she held the poster up and looked at it, and then she rolled it up, and she said, "Hers are knobs, but mine are real." <laughs> Whoa! And in the room full of seventh graders, this line played very well. Oh my god. <laughs> That's the perfect age to deploy that. And I have not thought about that in a long time. (laughs) And now that I'm recounting it, I don't know how to feel about it. (laughs) Was it cool or was it weird? Two things can be true. Mm, Yeah, that's true. I think it was cool and weird. That, yeah, I think so too. I I don't know that I have a story like that. I I mean that's I did not tell that story with the expectation that it would be followed up with the better story. Okay, that's true. You know when to play your ace in the hole. <laughs> um, so we're in Miss Edmonds' music class, and uh, Jess loves her obviously, and they're singing a song. It's like the every Friday they have this magical music class, and everyone else kind of like doesn't like they play along, but maybe they don't love it. And Leslie clearly enjoys it as much as he does. And here's here's the section. He smiled at her. What the heck? There wasn't any reason he couldn't. What was he scared of anyhow? Lord, sometimes he acted like the original yellow-bellied sapsucker. He nodded and smiled again. She smiled back. He felt there in the teacher's room that it was the beginning of a new season in his life, and he chose deliberately to make it so. He did not have to make any announcement to Leslie that he had changed his mind about her. She already knew it. And I love that last part because that's the thing that kids do really well is like you just you don't even need to tell someone. You just come you come to a new understanding and then you both know that you have come to that understanding. And you're just friends now. You're just best good friends. And it's really I really like it. A, there's lots of stuff like yellow bellied sapsucker in this book, which is kind of fun. Um but yeah, so now they're just the best of friends, and they learn about each other on bus rides. Uh, he learns that she moved out here with her parents, who are, uh, quote, reassessing their value structure. <laughs> they are... Sure. <laughs> they are kind of like eccentric, cosmopolitan authors. Her mom like writes novels. Her dad writes like political books or something, and they have decided to move out of the city buy a farm and renovate it presumably like for her benefit to like be out in nature i guess mm-hmm. um there is like a cool moment where her and jess both go like yeah but the parents actually like consider us when they make these decisions and i know <sighs> like as a kid probably, you never feel like don't, it they probably don't not they don't know they don't not but they're a lot especially in the way that these parents are described as like having means they have money in a town where not a lot of people now have money um but they are also like eccentric they don't own a tv 
which is like a weird ostracizing thing for Leslie this, when that comes and out. I assume this is a money thing and not like a hipster, I don't even own a TV type thing. No, it is definitely a, a hipster, I don't own a TV. Her parents oh, cool. are cool, stinking cool. with money, and the rest of the town does not have a lot of money, but they all have TVs because it's a culture thing. Mm-hmm. So um, that comes out when like everyone's assigned to write a paper about a history TV show. And she can't because she doesn't have a TV, which is like, that's a little embarrassing. That sucks. You can't do your homework because you're what not a normal other, kid. What are the other kids writing about? Do you like, do you know? They're writing about like a, a half hour special on Jacques Cousteau that's supposed I to be see. on channel six. Okay. I don't know which channel six is. Well, it doesn't matter. In my day, it was ABC. That's usually what I hear is channel or was, was it ABC or was three ABC? I don't remember. Very important. Four is NBC. <laughs> oh, my good God. <laughs> <laughs> so they're hanging out, the two of them. They're best good friends. And she decides that they need a secret place because they clearly are not really connected to anyone else in town. And they go out into the woods. And she's like, it'll be a secret country and we'd be in charge. And she's like, it'll be called Terabithia. And they have to swing across this creek on a rope. And then they end up a little darker spot in the woods, which is further than Jess likes to be. Uh, And they declare it their kingdom. And they, like, find some wood and some boards and, like, build a little shed and call it their castle. And then, like, multiple times throughout the rest of the book, they will just, like, go hang out there. And there's never really, like, a crisis where they go and run there and like need to cry about it. There's no like, Oh, a real dangerous person is chasing us. We need to hide here. It's usually, it's just this place that they go. It's a a refuge from a non-specific sort of adolescent threat and not any particular like eighties teen movie threat. (laughs) Correct. It is not. Yeah. And for them, because they are playing at being in charge of it, there is this sense of like they are not in control of their own lives. They're reaching an age where they feel like they should be. And so now they've set up this fantasy universe that is like vaguely inspired by C.S. Lewis <laughs> where they can just hang out. Um, I do like, I mean, I, I don't know that this was intentional on Patterson's part, but I do like how she could like write off the decision to call it terabithia as the kids ripping off an ex- existing fantasy work oh yeah instead like, of her ripping it off it's pretty genius <laughs> yeah. like the day the day she comes up with it she says to jess leslie does like oh i'll give you my c.s lewis books so that you can learn about how all the animals work like, Boy, i wonder if that was a was an editor note like uh, you kind of stole this <laughs> But could you make it seem like you meant to? It's possible. There's also a part later in the book where Leslie accompanies Jess's family to church on Easter. And she's never been to church before. And she thinks it's fascinating. She Her family's not particularly religious, but she just thinks it's very interesting. Jess is obviously bored because he goes every week. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, she's like, oh, my God, that was fascinating. All those stories about Jesus, it's sort of like Aslan. <laughs> um... <laughs> My I can dude. just imagine Patterson just like <sighs> laughing at her desk, writing a kid saying, "Oh my God, it's just like Aslan." Is Aslan Jesus? <laughs> no, this was—I mean—that was sort of my experience in later teenagehood, sure. realizing sure. this about the books I've been reading the whole time. But so 
their adventures as kids uh, involve um, one major con- like source of conflict is this girl Janice Avery, who's a seventh grader, who's like mean to Jess's little sister. So they enact this like big revenge plot that involves like writing a fake letter from a boy that Janice really likes. They plan it in her desk. Everyone starts talking about. Everyone finds out about it somehow. And then she gets stood up because it was never going to happen in the first place. Very mm-hmm. cruel kid stuff. Yeah, like typical kid. And it's it's garbage. one of those things where it's like the book justifies ju- justifies it initially by saying, oh, Janice is this mean bully girl. Um, and then they enact this plan and it makes her mad and they got her. And then later in the book, uh, Leslie and Jess hear Janice like crying in the bathroom. And there's a beat where Leslie's like, I got it. Oh, fine, I'll go talk to her. Um, and they find out that it's more home trouble. Um, there's like domestic abuse happening in her home, and like she encourages Janice to just take control of that story and not let her friends blab. And like, sure, kind of the the pariahs finding allyship with each other. Um, so the book never really lets there be a bad guy, which is cool. Um, even the folks that the kids are like, they're not great. Like. They even always though, yeah, have like, a scene later. Yeah, as I recall, even like the the bullies and the older siblings and stuff who are sort of vilified don't like they're not entirely one note. Like there there is yeah. always something in the book to explain the way they are or to like moderate the way they're presented or, or something like that. And this is, of course, the age where that becomes a thing that you can like wrap your brain around. So it's important to see it reflected in a story. Where? Yeah, like in there, there's another kid. Like I know that um, Janice Avery is one of the main antagonists, but isn't there also somebody who um, Jess is like competing with to be the fastest in the fifth grade? Yeah, that's the boy, and and Leslie beats him in the race. Also, Yikes. yeah, good. So I don't, I don't remember if he has a like come around redemption story. If he just kind of drops off for the most point i just but. know that the the way that the book presents these like not quite enemies but yeah yeah sort of rivals in grade school is very true to the experience of being in grade school at yes. least at least my experience of being in grade school i realize i have no idea what it is like now which is yeah strange. that's a whole other thing oh man I feel like I need um, to listen to a podcast of eight-year-olds like talking about what this experience is like now. About their but... Snapchats and stuff. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they're really good friends. He gets teased by his family for her being his girlfriend. He meets her eccentric parents and they like him. She calls them by her by their first names, which is like really good late 20th century code for like eccentric parents. Eccentric like, liberals. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I call my parents Bill and Judy. What do you call your parents? Mom and dad. Like that kind of, <laughs> you know. Um, I'm going to tell my kids to call Susanna and I Bill and Judy. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Um, he gets her a puppy for Christmas. He finds a free puppy and he names it Prince Tarion and gives it to her. And she gives him art supplies because she likes his art, which is really cute. Okay. But when you give somebody a puppy, you're just giving them a chore. It's fine. Her parents love it. It's all good. It all works that, out. The, like pets are <laughs> when you have a talk about a pet and then you get a pet. That's fine. But surprise pets are not a thing that most people want. Yeah, 
she thinks it's the best. Surprise responsibilities. Yeah, it's the low. The low level is like a DVD box set. The high level is a puppy. What if a DVD box set, but you had to feed it and then it peed everywhere if you didn't let it go outside? And it was mad if you didn't watch it all the time. This is the worst Seinfeld season four box set that anybody's ever had. <laughs> put me on now. Put me on. 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 Or else I'll poop on everything. <laughs> yeah. I hate you, DVDs. I might do it anyway. <laughs> Just because I'm so excited. Um, so then the book builds to this dramatic spring break the worst spring break in all of human history for jess jess and leslie so as i said jess and leslie go to church she finds it interesting he finds it boring uh the next day is their first monday off from school and the rain is a pouring and they go to terabithia but the creek is kind of raging and jess doesn't really like it he thinks it's pretty dangerous he falls down he's fine not great the next day, they go back. Again, the creek, really rough, having a bad time. They end up like hanging out in the shed. He's really cold. He thinks the trees are kind of spooky. And he goes to bed that night kind of feeling bad that he's going to have to tell Leslie the next day that, like, I don't think I can go back there tomorrow. Like, we just need to wait. And he kind of feels like he's a weak kid um, and he's a scaredy cat and he doesn't like it. Sure, but, that's real. I mean, if all your friends are doing something that you yourself do not want to do, you don't want to be the person who says, let's not do that. And especially it's like, oh, I don't want to go to the special place that is ours. Like that's That it. is like yours and mine, and that's yeah. it, yeah. And then the next morning, he gets a phone call from his favorite teacher, Miss Edmonds. And Miss Edmonds says, hey, I've got cabin fever from all the rain. You want to go... To a road trip with me, 10-year-old boy, to an art museum in Washington, D.C.? And he goes to his sleeping mom and goes, uh, there's a thing for school. I gotta go. And she's like, I'm asleep. And he leaves. This is the way that kids get abducted, This is a bad... I don't... This is a... This is... This take is sort of me being funny, but I blame everything bad that happens in this book on Miss Edmonds. <laughs> She has caused all of this. I think there is a (laughs) non-trivial number of people in our audience who would agree with you on this. And I and I recognize that's like blaming, you know, like the nurse or one of the friars in Romeo and Juliet. Like the story happens the way it happens, but like I'm gonna stand on this hill and blame this person. So he goes on this one. He has this wonderful day with his favorite teacher. They look at just him and the teacher too. Yeah, totally weird. Like not cool at all. Like what? Not great. Under what framework is this happening where it's like cool? I don't know. It's one of those things where if the book were other books might show him as more explicitly troubled. I don't think that he is, but if he were if it were more explicitly dealing with like him and having a really rough home and it was about a teacher getting him out of there and like spending time with him. That would be that's a different story than this one because mm-hmm. this is just a fun time art teacher, music teacher who's like, "Yo, let's look at paintings, kid," and just whisks him away to paintings. And he doesn't tell Leslie because then he would have to tell her that like he didn't want to go to Terabithia, but he also doesn't invite her either because he's kind of just interested in avoiding the issue. He's so pumped; it's the most beautiful day. He comes home, he walks into the kitchen, everyone's there. And there's no food, which is weird. 
And his mom starts crying, but she's really relieved to see him. And then his older sister, Brenda, just says to him, your girlfriend's dead and mama thought you was dead too. Whoa. Miss Edmonds, I'm going to blame you till the day I die. Miss Edmonds, like you really should have obtained, like did she really think that getting verbal like consent from a kid without actually talking to the parent was like that was sufficient. Now, and I know he, I realize we're living in a different era, yes. but it's like, I don't know. It just seems deeply weird to have a kid like call you up or like call a, one kid up yeah. and to offer to take them on like a personal field trip. It's just, it's let me go through the chain of events. Very, she called it's this very house, strange. She called their house before his mom was awake. His six year old, sister answered the phone and said miss edmonds wants to talk to Wait, you how old is the youngest child like four and maybell's like six or seven so there is no way in in god's, god's universe <laughs> and like all of god's creation that this mother wakes up before 6 30 a.m oh, this is just a there's it's it's a mess and like again in the in the you know realm of probabilities, does he spend time with Leslie that day, and does she still fall off the slick rope and hit her head on a rock? Maybe that happens. Does he go to her house and say, "I don't want to go there," and then they go and watch TV and like drink hot chocolate? That's also possible. Miss Edmonds, I'm looking at you. It's your fault. What did you do, Miss Edmonds? Why did you do it this way? So I, mean, I I know you couldn't have known the thing about the the rope and the creek and stuff, but it's just it's a strange pretext for a field trip, is it's what I am saying. Awkward. So the last mm. third of the book is this really rough, earnest portrait of kid grief, um, and I'm okay like casting a lot of blame at Miss Edmonds because Jess spends a lot of time beating himself up. Um, he says, it had been so dumb of him not to ask if Leslie could go to. He and Leslie and Miss Edmonds could have had a wonderful day. Different, of course, from the day he and Miss Edmonds had had, but still good, still perfect. Miss Edmonds and Leslie liked each other a lot. It would have been fun to have Leslie along. I'm really sorry, Leslie. He took off his jacket and sneakers and crawled under the covers. I was dumb not to think of asking. And, like, again, the reason I bring up my own, like, pet peeve against Miss Edmonds is, like, this type of thinking in loss feels very true especially for a kid who's like clearly experiencing it for the first time mm-hmm. um i think the first and i don't know if we've talked we've probably talked about it on previous podcasts the first like major loss that i can think of is when my grandmother passed away and i was in eighth grade and that was she was in the hospital for a long time but i was still really broken up about it so there wasn't like a blame game that i was playing or anything but there, even if it's something as simple as like, what was the last word you said to someone, or what is the last scene that I had with them? It's really I mean, hard I, not to replay those and feel yeah, find th- find and manufacture and then nurture guilt because you feel like you're supposed to. I think that's I mean that's that's normal when when anybody passes yeah. away, right? Mm-hmm. You just like you think through what was your last interaction with that person and. In an ideal world, was it what you imagined your last interaction with that person would be like? Yeah, I think the last word that Leslie says to him is yuck. 
like that we see in the book anyway like they mm-hmm. they they hang out. They had gone in to like watch TV at his house, and he was like, "Ooh, I'll make some coffee that we can drink to warm us up." And she goes, "Yuck!" And that's like the last that thing. Is the, that is an appropriate reaction. <laughs> that's the last the thing that the reader gets from her. Um, and he moves on into like other rough stages of grief. Like he realizes that all the other kids at school are going to treat him differently, and he doesn't. He doesn't know how he's going to feel about that. Um, he goes to their house and he really feels weird about all the adults crying and feels like they're not crying for her. They're crying for them. Um, his sister asks, his sister asks him if she, if he saw Leslie like laid out and he just punches her. (laughs) Like Maybell is like, did you see her? And he just punches Maybell and then just runs out of the house. No, Maybell. Um, he like throws all of his paints that she gave him into the creek and then we get the first like there's there's one section where his dad like brings him in out of the rain the very first time that they deliver the news and brings him home um and then they, he has to convince Jess that it actually happened like the next day Jess spends a couple hours like denying it um and then his dad comes out and like spends some time with him at the creek and is just like hey it's okay she's going to be fine um she wherever she is if you know she's anywhere she's fine and you get a set like it's a good moment and it's a good like that dad realizing probably what he has and has not done for his son yeah um i think at that point in the book his dad has also been laid off so like there's extra tension there and his dad's like doing chores in the house and stuff like that um and the book ends with he goes to terabithia and does this cool little ceremony for leslie and then uh maybell like shows up and almost gets stuck on a branch that's across the water and he has to save her and he has to like overcome his own fear about crossing the the creek to do it and then he makes like a bridge for her to cross so that she can be like the new queen of terabithia uh, and like share this with her and it's funny i was reading a section there's like two bits at the end of this edition of the book that i got for my kindle one's a speech like i think it's her newberry award speech and then one's like just an afterword and she says that a lot of kids have complained to her that maybell gets to go to terabithia because they're upset that it was like leslie and jess's place and why would he share that with his sister and she's like no it's about his growth kids 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 you stupid idiot kids you're missing (laughs) the point of the book so it is really sad. I, I don't, I'm a crier. I didn't cry while I was reading it, but I certainly was like, I could feel it in me once it happened. The gut punch is real. The gut punch in this book is real. Yeah, um, I that, that is my experience of it. And I, I am not a crier, like, sure, emphatically. And I didn't, I don't think I cried even when I read the book as a kid. But yeah, it's the, the, immediacy of it and the the realness of it and the way it conveys but the way it conveys to you as a kid like how death works and also the way experiencing death as a kid is different from experiencing it as an adult like both of those things are very very real and very well done yeah there's another beat that feels really true to a lot of grief from loss where he realizes in the moment where Leslie's dad is hugging him and he like doesn't know how to relate to a sad adult. 
that the the one person who could help him through this situation is Leslie. And like yeah, that's right. a really real thing. Yeah. Um and also to me, like and I'm getting a little upset about thinking about it, but like for me, a concept that is not even necessarily personal, but like and movies and books have used it probably more so than is necessary but like parents losing their kids is like a that is a rough thing um and that has gotten me on on a number of occasions and it's certainly something i was thinking about with this book yeah um yeah it's a good book i don't know that that we can like there's a larger unpack unless you have any specific questions andrew i mean i i don't because i've i've read the book but like Thinking about it, like, can you talk and at all a little bit about like what it was like to read it years and years ago, or at a different part in your life, or or anything like that? It's just like whenever I read a book like this, or 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 any kind of like young adult fiction that was not like assigned in class, it always felt like something I was. It it always felt like something I was embarking upon by myself. So yeah. like. In sixth grade, our teacher read Where the Red Fern Grows, though I, I think I had I had read it already. But yeah, like like we had books like Shiloh and I think Old Yeller happened at some point. Just like there there were books that dealt with grief that we read as a group, but then mm. I also was off doing all this stuff by myself and it just felt it didn't like there there definitely was not like as a as a like pre-adolescent kid sure who was reading this stuff independently of anybody at school because I was not super popular um there was there was nobody I could share the stuff with or like relate to about yeah, for it sure. mm-hmm. and so then you I just carry it like, around then you just carry yeah, it around yeah you you carry it around and and, and you think about like when when you are in 5th grade and you're reading this book like I bet a bunch of people as fifth graders like had some kind of older kid who they imagined as like Janice Avery or as like Gary, the run fast boy, or like you have people in your life who fill these archetypes. And then you, when you're reading this book, you like fill those people in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think. And I don't know. It, it's, my memory of this book is that it's just it's very true yeah i think it helps that she was writing it while her kids were the age of this book like that that clearly comes yes that that definitely helps and that that makes it feel real she even says uh in one of her afterwards that one of the only times she has ever taken another like actual person's words and like put it into one of her books is when her son, who was interested in drawing, uh, was like drawing goofy stuff. Like Jess doesn't draw real things for the most part. He draws a lot of animals doing like human stuff to like be goofy. Mm-hmm. And uh, at one point, Jess says that he doesn't draw trees because he quote he can't get their poetry right, which is like this like bizarre, beautiful kid statement that actually Patterson's son David said at one point. She's like, "That's just too perfect. I gotta put it in the book." <laughs> that's my kid um so yeah and there but yeah there's there, there is something to be said when a kid who has trouble relating to other kids like reads a book and feels like it like it captures their predicament like it, it yeah it uh-huh. captures 
how they feel trying to relate to the world around them and to other kids. Like that is what this book did for me. Sure. When I originally read it. And I I think what's so, what's really great about the first two thirds of the book, even before it becomes like the thing that it's known for is really about how two kids who are experiencing a lot of loneliness in their lives can find each other and like forget it for a lot for most of their time yeah yeah definitely um and and how much of like what you're saying like how much of the generic experience of being a kid can easily feel very lonely depending on where you are in your family and depending on uh, where you are with regard to the other kids in your class um and what you're interested in when that's really all you have to define yourself um so yeah it's just a cool book and and also the they are they don't really fit into traditional gender stereotypes either like they're bucking up against them but not in a way that that's the only thing the book's about it's just it's cool it's a cool book everybody should read this book bring some tissues (laughs) it's a it's a sad one it's a fun one but it's a sad but it's a sad one yeah um so we we put out the call uh on twitter that's twitter.com slash overdue pod our facebook is facebook.com slash overdue pod we put out the call on twitter for people to tell us about sad books we got a whole bunch of people responding so thanks for that um one of the first books i remember crying about was across five aprils which we should probably talk about at some point civil war book. i don't know that i ever cried at a book i just remember going to my mom just like weeping like i didn't know what had happened to me i was just sad because of a book and it was weird um so I want to thank a whole bunch of people for uh, hitting us up on our social media pages this week. That includes Aaron, Daniel, Amber, Tysophine, Andrea, Caitlin, Anna, Tessa, Katie, Mr. J, Whitney, Sarah, Rachel, Chris, Julie, Sam, Adina, Ricky, Jess, Grace, Albie, uh, Jennifer, Scott, Knitting is Metal, Nicole, <laughs> Sarah, Aaron, Ellen, Hannah, Nate, Lori, Brooke, Liz, Stacy. Uh, Lola, Wendy, Melissa, Sean, Graham, and many more that I didn't make it onto this list. Uh, you can also reach us on email. That's a service. OverduePod at gmail. Yeah, you know, email. Yeah, OverduePod at gmail.com. Andrew, what else should folks know in the meantime? Uh, if you want to find out pretty much anything else about the show, you should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. This week, I want to highlight... All the ways you can subscribe to the show. You can do it in iTunes. You can do it in Google Play. You can do it in Stitcher. You can do it in Spotify, apparently, I guess. And then also, if you want to just, if you just have like a general purpose podcatcher you want to post in, we got an RSS feed too. Yeah, we do it all. Get you a podcast that can do all of it. Um, If you subscribe in any of those, you get new episodes when they drop on Mondays. You get bonus episodes when they drop. Craig, when is our bonus? episode dropping this month 10 by ben lerner will hit the main feed on thursday patreon folks it's in your patreon feeds already yeah look at it just look just find open it. your open your eyes next week uh we'll be dropping our philly live show andrew red Anne of green gables and then mm-hmm. after that what are you reading andrew um i'm gonna be reading what is it called by george rr R. martin the oh, di- dying of the light dying of the light Yes, by George it, is a, R. R. it is by George R.R. R. Martin of Game of Thrones fame. I have read like probably the first 20% of it at this point. And I just I feel like we need to declare a moratorium on telling readers what color a character's hair is by having them brush it out of their eyes first. <laughs> okay, cool. 
Well, you're going to tell me all about it in two weeks. I can't that wait. Is, yes, I will. Uh, all right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. It's It's always a privilege to do this show for you. I hope you're back next week to hear our live show. Until then, y'all, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast. Got you with that one. I hate you with that joke. Ah, low, you idiot. That's just, that one's there for the for the hardcore fans. <laughs> <laughs> I think Utlu would have been a funnier name. It would have been, but I, I was I had to get it out there before I ran <laughs> yeah, out of time. No, that's fine. <laughs>